began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So, this week's episode is called The Bad News is the Good News. And we're going to discuss the unforgivable sin of not forwarding those internet memes and emails that say, if you don't forward this, then it's because you are ashamed of Jesus. And if you are ashamed of Jesus, then Jesus will be ashamed of you and deny you before his Father in heaven. Because, you know, who cares if you're willing to die rather than deny him while a Muslim extremist is threatening to cut your head off if you aren't, if you, you know, or if, if you weren't willing to face the true test of loyalty that the Bible's talking about, which is sharing that meme, that's real loyalty. Because seriously, we've all seen those, right? Aren't they awful? I, aren't they just beyond shameful and disgusting? Someone wants a lot of likes and shares, and so they post it, and then they get their false feeling of having preached to the lost while racking up those emojis. Ugh. But it's worthless because it teaches nothing. It imparts nothing. It is a verse removed from all semblance of dignity and context and has been reduced to a manipulative guilt trip and virtue signaling. <laughs> I tell you, I have never in my life forwarded something like that, and I never will. Not even to make fun of it would I share it. How we treat the Bible is serious business, and this context here is deadly serious, as we will see. It's time to stop playing games and making it sound like denying Yeshua can be done so frivolously. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, which is called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. 
Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And I'm about to add a few more resources to that list because I came across some really more awesome books, which, you know, my poor husband. (laughs) Say, honey, I bought some more books. So, Let's get to, uh, this is the end of chapter 8 and the first verse of chapter 9, by the way, of the Gospel of Mark. So, they are still on their way to Mount Hermon, where, as we will see in two weeks, Yeshua will leave nine of his disciples down below somewhere in the villages of Caesarea Philippi and ascend to the top with Peter, James, and John. Now, next week, we will discuss why Mount Hermon is probably the Mount of Transfiguration, but this week we have a whole lot of drama going on. Yeshua has just asked the big question. Why do other people say, you know, or sorry, who do other people say that I am? And more importantly, who do you say that I am? Peter responds that he's the Messiah. The Christ. Yeshua tells them to tell no one, which must have been a real bummer. And real quick, I want to address the favorite meme topic, speaking of memes, that Christos, the Greek word, um, is pagan. And I've probably done this before, but I want to do it again real quick. I ran out of time last week. Um, We need to stop being afraid of words and we need to stop, you know, being intimidated by those people who label everything as pagan but without anything but wild stories backing it up. You know, there are people who want to outlaw just about every word that has ever been associated with Christianity, sometimes making up, I mean, extremely preposterous stories about um, pagan origins. Um, So, um, and I've covered Amen in my blog... And I've covered uh, Curios, I've covered Lord, I've covered God. Maybe I've covered El and Elohim, but Ryan White and I did that on his podcast a few weeks ago. Um, But I was looking at the Septuagint earlier, you know, a few years back. And I I found this in Habakkuk, okay? Habakkuk 3.13 is Septuagint, referring to the Messiah as the anointed. The word is Christos. Now, the Septuagint, which was a translation that began during the 3rd century before the common area and was completed by 132 BCE, and you know, was reportedly translated by a group of 70 or 72 great Torah scholars who were fluent in Greek, according to the letter of Aristeus. 
and is an incredibly useful tool for the understanding of what words meant in the context of the time. Now, it wasn't all done at once, okay? And the Septuagint is, um, it's not one long document. A lot of people think it is. It's a collection of documents. Um, you know, first they did the Torah, and then they did various books over this, like, 200-year period, all right? Now, many quotes from uh, from out of the Tanakh, which, the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, by the New Testament authors were actually taken more from the Septuagint version, which is why they do not line up perfectly with the modern Hebrew Masoretic text. Evidently, the scholars saw no problem in using the word Christos in Messianic verses, so it cannot possibly be inherently pagan word. Just ask any Jewish friend of yours, and when they will readily admit to getting 70 Jewish scholars to agree on anything, it's like a miracle. I'm serious. Anyone who's listening is chuckling right now. They're going, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Try to get two. To, um... You ever heard the, the joke that, that that some Jewish people tell? They said if two Jewish people... Or no, if one Jewish person was um, was stranded on a desert island, he would immediately build two synagogues, one to go to and one never to be caught dead in. <laughs> anyway, um, so Habakkuk 3.13 in the English reads, You came out for the deliverance of your people to save your anointed. You threw death on the heads of the lawless. You lifted bands to the neck. So to save your anointed. Anointed is translated Christos in the Septuagint. Let's look at the Psalms of Solomon uh, 17, 35 through 36. This is a uh, Jewish wisdom literature. This is not part of the Bible. Uh, this is the first or second century before the common era. And to see the glory of the Lord that God glorified, and he is a righteous king over them, taught by God, and there is no justice, injustice in his days among them, because they are all holy and their king is the anointed Lord. Um, so, and the anointed Lord is, is Christos Kyrios. So, you know, no more freaking out about the word Christ, okay? It's, it's a title no different from Kyrios, Lord, God, El, Elohim, and even Baal, which Yahweh uses to describe himself in Hosea. So, semantic context always determines Meaning, always, you know, believe me, you don't even want to try living in a world where we can lift a word out of context and make it mean something entirely different. Um, yeah, you just don't. You don't want to, you don't want to call your significant other a fox and have them accuse you of calling them an animal, right? Or worse, comparing them to Herod Antipas because that's how Yeshua used the, the word fox. Um... So, they're still on their way to Mount Hermon. And Peter has delivered the verdict of the Twelve. They are following the promised Messiah. You know, and you can just imagine how giddy they all were, right? They just, they hit the gold mine, literally. They're going to be rich and powerful, and people will bow as they go by in the streets, and they're going to have the best seats in the synagogue, and the honor rating of their families are going to go through the roof. I could just about hear them squealing with delight. 
and then Yeshua had to go and burst their bubbles. For the first time in this gospel, he is going to explain the need for a command of silence. Every other time, you know, he just tells people or demons to be silent. This time, they're going to have an explanation as to why. Okay, so remember, uh, he commanded the leper not to say anything. He commanded the um, person who was, oh, oh, the Jairus's, the Jairus, uh, parents of the uh, girl he raised from the dead. He said, don't tell anybody. And also the um, the man who was deaf and had a speech impediment in um, in the Decapolis. He told them all, you know, don't tell anybody about this and you know, except for maybe Jairus and his wife, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think Jairus and his wife were the only ones who actually <laughs> did what he asked. So now this is the one of the first teachings that he gives to his disciples on his exact fate. And we see um, three of these between here, which is the end of chapter 8, and the end of chapter 10. So he's going to tell them very plainly his fate three times. He's going to say it differently each time. And each time the disciples are going to respond in a completely inappropriate way because they are so different from us. And we would have gotten it right. And, you know, we would have never just said something totally boneheaded, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> they are us. All right. So, um, uh, chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I mean, what? I mean, it's like... It's the worst day ever so far, okay? There's probably hasn't been a bigger letdown in the history of the world up to this point right here. And it's here at this moment when everything changes. And in fact, the focus of this gospel changes from one where he is teaching and preaching and preparing his disciples for ministry through example and self-revelation of himself as the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah, the prophesied arm of the Lord, the great Isaiah scroll found at Qumran. But now he's preparing them to understand him as the suffering servant of Isaiah as well. He won't be the Davidic king they were expecting. He won't be embraced by the Jewish leadership and the Bible experts. He was saying that they were going to kill him. Which probably meant they would kill all his disciples too. I doubt they would even, you know, I doubt they even heard him say he would rise again after three days. Or if they did hear it as we see later in chapter 9, they had no understanding of what it meant. This was a crushing revelation of his mission. It was completely unexpected. So preparation for the next phase means a different focus on teaching from now on. You know, like a good king, he has to prepare his subjects for his death. 
much the same way Moses prepared the people of Israel for his death in the sermon that we call Deuteronomy. By, but why does he have to do this on the heels of, of Peter's pronouncement of his identity? Frankly, Yeshua has to redefine their definition of Messiah and he has to do it immediately. He has to remove all their wrong preconceived notions and tell them how it is. He can't allow them to go forward with false hopes. This is the moment where they either keep following him or run for the hills. Because not only is he redefining the word Messiah, he's redefining their own fates as well. And not only is he redefining Messiah, he's redefining the Son of Man from their understanding from First Enoch, who is everywhere honored and never subjected to suffering and humiliation. You know, but we'll talk about First Enoch next week before we get to the Mount of Transfiguration. I want you to notice that the elders, chief priests who were Sadducees, and the scribes won't just fail to recognize him. They will outright and formally reject him, and as a result, he will be killed. And you need to know that no one in the ancient world would make up such a shameful thing. And if it was made up, no one in the Jewish or Greco-Roman world would have believed or followed Yeshua. It was countercultural beyond anything we can imagine today. It was like a Spartan one day waking up and saying that there was a new God who didn't want them to fight anymore, but be at peace with everyone. And they would have killed him immediately to prove him wrong, if he was lucky. When you want to invent a cult leader, you appeal to people's wants and needs, not to what disgusts people. And the thought of a dead, rejected leader was worse than anything imaginable. And when it ends up being a crucified leader? No, absolutely not. Unless it's true and God is actively drawing people to believe. People then weren't like people now. They wouldn't just believe anything and lean on their individualism to sustain them in the face of ridicule. They were integrated into an honor-shame community structure. What they were asked to believe was revolting, to put it mildly. But, okay, let's get back to the situation here. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, no parables this time, no metaphors. They heard him. And Peter is about to do what Peter always seems to do. Follow up on a fantastic show of faith by totally blowing it can't even begin to express what an, an unacceptable and utter breach of social etiquette he committed here. It was unheard of for a student to rebuke his teacher. Just goes to show how far off balance that Peter and the others were thrown when they heard this teaching. I'm serious. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were vomiting. It was that upsetting. And this would have shocked the Greco-Roman audience of Mark 
if this was indeed written for Roman Christians, which seems likely, you know, given so many Latin loanwords in the text. What is Peter really saying here? And believe me, he speaks for all 12 of them when he says this. No, you clearly don't understand what the function of the Messiah is. Let me explain it to you. You have a duty to overthrow our oppressors so that we can be back on top again like we were in the days of David and Solomon. You will restore the Davidic monarchy and eliminate the corruption of the high priesthood and your new dynasty will rule forever and ever just as the prophets say and we'll be right by your side. In other words, we want somebody like Simon Bar Kokhba, you know, even though he hasn't been born yet. You need to do something about our suffering and crush these Gentiles. What you are talking about will get us all killed. And, you know, here we actually have a moment of crisis for Yeshua. We can call it the fourth temptation of Christ. The first three were in the wilderness, of course, when Satan outright tempted him in three ways to ditch his mission and go the easy route of power and oppression. Now his own right-hand man, Peter, is tempting him to take another shortcut away from the terrible future awaiting him in Jerusalem. He will again face temptation at Gethsemane. Crucifixion was so horrifying and humiliating and painful beyond what words can describe. He had the power to do things in the way of the world, but again, he sees the temptation for what it is, an abandonment of the crisis of hum all humanity in needing to be free of the Pharaoh of sin and death. He must resist and go to the cross. But what Peter has done is a horrible betrayal in testing him. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, who, in my opinion, you know, this was, he was talking to all of them because Peter represented all of them in this. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he turns toward the other 11 and probably sees in their eyes exactly what Peter has expressed out loud. They want a worldly Messiah, and they want a worldly future. Power, and honor, and everything that comes with it. They have been following him, and they want a beneficial payoff. So he rebukes Peter in front of them all. Get behind me, Satan. So let's talk about the word Satan which shows up in the Hebrew and Greek as the generic word meaning adversary or opposer or accuser. Okay. Don't get me, don't get this wrong. Okay. It isn't as though Satan has possessed Peter the way he will possess Judas. Peter is acting the part of the enemy by initiating an attack on God's plans for humanity. Okay. Same thing as in the wilderness only this time coming from a trusted friend, an unexpected source. And um, it is interesting that this is the second time that Simon um, is renamed, okay? At the calling of the Twelve, he is renamed Peter, or Petros, or Cephas, as uh, John relates it. Now he is given the name 
adversary. And he's given orders to get back where he belongs. Behind Yeshua as his student slash disciple slash follower. Peter needs to learn his place and do what he is told. And Yeshua tells him that his mind and motivations and agendas are worldly and not godly. It's as strong a rebuke as you can likely imagine, you know, in context. But I do want you to notice what does not happen. Yeshua says, get back where you belong behind me and follow me. He doesn't say, hit the road, you loser. I am so sick of you wasting my time. I tell you, you know, he's more patient than I am. Praise God. Or, well, I would have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> and we will be back in a few minutes with part two. Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week's ep this week's broadcast is the bad news is the good news. And in the last half, we um, talked about Yeshua's own messianic revelation. You know, he he revealed. You know, Peter said, "Yeah, you're you're the Messiah," and Yeshua responded by revealing what the Messiah is, which didn't make Peter happy. And so we just finished with, um, you know, get behind me, Satan. You know, you have your mind set on um, the things of the world and not on the things of God. And really what he was saying is, you know, you, you know, you don't rebuke me. You get back behind me where you belong. You're, you're my disciple. You know, I'm the one who you need to be listening to. And actually in the transfiguration on the mountain, that's exactly what the voice from heaven says to Peter, James, and John, this is my son. You you listen to him. Okay? Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so now he's saying, you know, this is how you follow me. And this is the closest Yeshua ever comes to outright talking about how they will kill him. And the meaning would not be lost on his disciples. But Yeshua has now called a crowd around him. So I'm, I'm assuming that the 13 have, 13 means 12 plus 1, right? Um, they finally arrived at their destination of the villages of Caesarea Philippi. I say this because back in verse 7, it clearly states that they're on their way there when he asked them who they think he is. Now there is a crowd available, which means a population center. Uh, the disciples are back in their collective place, listening as he details to the crowd the cost of following him. He's telling his disciples, point blank, that they're going to die. The crowd probably doesn't get it because they didn't have what came first, you know. They probably see it as metaphorical, like the way some teachers just shamefully rant on about how persecuted they are and how everyone who follows them will be too, you know. 
priming the pumps so that their followers see every minor disagreement as persecution and martyrdom. And they might even say, man, they're really crucifying me on social media, which I hate that expression. Oh my gosh, if I ever say it, they better actually be crucifying me because nothing else is, you don't call anything else that. But Yeshua isn't talking about the discomfort of being disagreed with. He's actually talking about people dying and being subjected to the type of rejection that can lead to ostracism and starvation and financial ruin. We go howling when somebody attacks us on Facebook when we really should just roll our eyes and allow God to deal with it. And yes, I have had to sit back and allow myself to be attacked, and God does handle it. Maybe not the way my flesh wants, but, you know, he does what's best. <laughs> I don't dare compare my discomfort and heartache with what he's talking about here. But, you know, taking up that kind of lightweight cross, you know, in my own life is the best I can do. And um, this is about what true discipleship looks like in a lot of places around the world. Carrying your crossbeam meant carrying a terrible weight past jeering crowds when you've already been scourged and you're unable to defend yourself. And I want to add here that when Yeshua was going to his crucifixion and was so badly beaten that he could not bear the weight of his own beam, none of the disciples were there to carry it for him. But a man from Cyrene in Libya, a city on the Mediterranean coast in Africa, True discipleship is giving up your right to live in this present age. Okay? Bearing your cross isn't having to deal with the normal things that come in life, like cancer or, or the death of a spouse or, or a child. I mean, they are horrible things, but that's not carrying your cross. Carrying your cross is what we endure for the sake of Yeshua and the gospel and and the other things everyone in the world has to deal with those things and they're they're not bearing their cross so we've got to really redefine okay uh verse 35 for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it so this is about allegiance something that Western believers don't spend enough time talking about or understanding. As individualists, um, we tend to see ourselves more as independent contractors for God instead of devoted servants whose total and complete allegiance leads us to our own deaths in, in all ways. Death to our flesh, to our way of doing and understanding and seeing things, Death to our bitterness, anger, and vengeance. Death to unforgiveness. And sometimes even bodily death in service to his kingdom and his promise that the gospel will someday have been preached to the ends of the earth, which it hasn't yet. Not even close. But we can't be those single-minded servants, servants if our goal is survival, or if our goal is to take matters into our own hands, or to gain a bigger audience, or to make sure that everyone agrees with us. All of that has to die. We are servants of a king, and in this life we are expendable. 
And the sooner we get that through our heads, the better. And, and that would be a problem if this life is all we have. And it is a problem if we behave as though that's true. We can't trust and be loyal to God while at the same time being bent on survival and not being harmed emotionally and physically by the outside world. When we are determined not to be humiliated or insulted or wronged or even killed, you know, it just doesn't work. It's the wrong focus. The kingdom is always going to fight that extreme love of self that is within us. And the only alternative to grieving the spirit by shutting it out is to yield with it. You'll do it, you know. Now, most people will never do that. They feel they have a right not to be hurt. They see things from the flesh. They really act as though they believe this life is all there is. But in truth, you know, this this life is less real than what we will know in the world to come. That we have the opportunity to serve the king of kings now is such a privilege and it's one worth dying for. However, losing your life for the sake of furthering the gospel and losing your life for the sake of Yeshua is a lot different than killing yourself because you don't like how things are going. All right. I mean, that's like the opposite of what Yeshua is talking about here. We are called to live and serve. And sometimes, you know, rarely in this part of the world, we die for it. Imagine a world where believers cared as much about the gospel as they care about their civil liberties. What could we accomplish? Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Well, there's nothing in this age worthy of, you know, putting above Yeshua and the gospel. Nothing. Not even if you have everything the world could offer, would it be enough? But that's what we want, right? And we've been conditioned to think that a man isn't a good provider unless his family is not only fed and warm, but well-fed and surrounded by luxuries. No matter who in the third world you know, is barely surviving on the slave wages it takes to produce what we demand to have so cheaply. And nothing we can gain here, you know, through denying Yeshua can be balanced out by enough good deeds to buy back our souls. Uh, verse 38, for whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful nation, sinful generation, Boy, there was, you know, Freudian slip there. Um, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when it comes, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And of course, this is where not forwarding those memes come in. Because, of course, as we've seen, that's exactly the sort of betrayal that is going to get you sent to hell, burning for eternity. Just kidding. This was spoken within the context of an honor-shame society where allegiance meant that you were bound to another person even if they were shamed, if you truly love them. Yeshua is about to become a public spectacle, tried and executed as a criminal in the most vile way you can imagine because crucifixion wasn't about torture. I mean, that was just means to the end of so thoroughly ruining a man's dignity that no one in their right mind would be willing to admit being associated with him ever again. 
It was insanity to be associated with someone who had been crucified. People ran the other direction, never talked about them again, wanted to forget the whole thing. He's warning them and preparing them for his death. We can't forget that. The crowd doesn't know it yet, but the disciples' minds are racing right now over the implication of having followed someone who the leadership is going to disgrace. You know, undoubtedly, the paradigm shift isn't going to happen overnight, as we will see in the next two times he teaches this to them. They still aren't accepting what he's saying. It's just too unthinkable to be true. You know, maybe they see it as a test, right? Verse 9, And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um, so many theories on this. Is he talking about his return? Obviously not, as that hasn't happened yet, and they're all dead now. And he said some, he didn't say, and there is this, I guess the Mormons have this, this theory that um, John never died, okay, because of certain things it says. Um, and so that's where this verse comes in, that John's not dead yet, and you know, but it says some, some is not one, <laughs> okay, some is multiple, so we still have to deal with multiple. Um, maybe uh, he's talking about the resurrection possibly I mean Judas is dead by that time which would make the some part of it ring true um, will it be the cross again possibly but it probably is referring to the transfiguration that will begin in the very next verse that we will talk about in two weeks where uh, Yeshua, Peter, James, and John all climb to the pinnacle of Mount Hermon and Yeshua will be shown in all his glory as Moses and Elijah minister to him as servants. The timing and truth of it, you know, leaves us with no need to get any more complicated than that. Atop Mount Hermon, they believed, you know, they, they and they believed this was ground central for evil in the ancient world, Yeshua is going to reveal his glory and issue a final challenge to Satan and the powers, principalities, and such of the spiritual realm. Okay? It's like in The Return of the King, where Aragon takes up the Palantir. You know, it's that eyeball thing, the big globe, and forces all the hatred and anger of the enemy against himself in order to just distract Sauron. You know, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien was a serious Christian <laughs> and wrote the Lord of the Rings with the gospel in mind. What Yeshua is about to do is an absolute challenge on the enemy's ground zero. And from here on out, the enemy will be intent on his destruction. The enemy knows the scriptures, but has no understanding of them. And so isn't in on God's plan. In killing Yeshua, the enemy will sign his own death warrant, but this account is where Yeshua finally makes him angry enough to put his plans into motion through the leadership and through the betrayal of Judas and through the oppression of the Roman Empire. If only one of those things were missing, it would not have worked. And so, the entire narrative is directed toward the cross-making, you know, it's directed toward the cross. 
okay? Making it happen and making it happen in a certain place at the perfect time in order to fulfill prophecy. But, you know, I'm getting way ahead of myself, so let's, let's backtrack a bit. I want to head back up to the verse about taking one's cross and following Yeshua because yesterday while talking to my friends in chat, I said something and one of them asked if he could post it on his wall. What I said was this, because I had been, you know, I had been writing this earlier in the day and was deep in thought about the implications of taking up our crossbeams and being focused on Yeshua and the importance of our allegiance being so absolute that they are, we are more mindful of being required to die for the sake of the gospel than on planning to kill for anything else. It's a paradigm shift from this world to, you know, the kingdom reality. And no, I'm not talking about pacifism per se, but as a mindset as to we, what we spend our time meditating on and how that impacts our walk and our interactions with this world. So anyway, here is what I said. <laughs> Some people won't die for Christ, but they will kill for their civil liberties. You know, a pleasantly shocking number of responders heard my intent and focused on the former statement. The tragedy of people who would not consider dying for Christ because they are too focused on living and their rights. There's this wrong preoccupation where people are actually spending time thinking about that what they will, quote-unquote, what they will do if need be, and, and making firm and determined plans to do it instead of, I am called to take up my cross and follow him, and dear Lord, I pray that I am never faced with the possibility of taking a life, but if I am, God, please tell me what you want me to do in that moment. In other words, we have to give God space to decide what we do and do not fight for, and more importantly, let him determine how we wage that battle and against whom. We will often find that our fears and agendas are in no way his own, but when we are proactively planning according to our fears and man-given rights and what man has granted, man can take away. We're going to lapse back into the ways that the world handles things. And I'm going to tell you right now, today is January 4th. <laughs> and in two days, the electrical hall, the electoral college of the United States is going to meet to declare the president. And I have been seeing a lot of people who are talking about armed uprisings and rebellions. And so when I wrote this, it was last week. And, and I'm seeing more and more people who are planning on killing, planning on doing it, not talking with God, not, you know, defending themselves, planning on it. So, um, you know, as expected, though, back to this, um, a lot of people ignored the beginning about dying, our obligation to die for Christ. And they did everything they could to defend their right to violence in the name of their cause. And some even brought up causes they figured I was talking about when, when really in the context of the original conversation, it was actually completely general, generalized with no set agenda whatsoever. Cause I wasn't thinking about January 6th then either. Um, and Messiah and his example and teachings didn't enter into anything they were saying because they started with their talking points that often selectively 
co-opted things the Bible said while ignoring the command to take up our crosses and follow him or turning the other cheek or blessed are the merciful and blessed are the peacemakers and all that. No one picks up their cross and follows him to anything but death. All right. But the world really has us distracted, diverted, derailed and bamboozled to the point where we argue with Yeshua about our right to be comfortable when we are called to be decidedly uncomfortable and to risk our lives not in pursuit of rights but in pursuit of righteousness and it is entirely different we've really been indoctrinated since birth in the importance of the american dream but what happened to being citizens of a different kingdom and our call to die for others if need be to serve their need for the gospel of the cross why is there so little focus on our dying and so much focus on doing whatever it takes to survive and to maintain our way of life? Why does our subconscious vehemently push aside and the one, you know, and violently defend the latter? Okay. It's hard to break out of the way the world thinks because we don't question where those thoughts come from. They serve our own self-interest even when we tell ourselves we're doing it for the sake of others. At the core, okay, it's, it's still fighting the way the world does on our own behalf instead of fighting the principalities, authorities, and powers who are the real movers and shakers in the spiritual realm. The people they are using need the gospel because they are slaves too. But we don't see them. You know, we don't see them the way Yeshua saw them as he was hanging on the cross. He forgave them because he saw the truth. They are still prisoners, no matter how powerful they seem in the here and now. Do we make plans to die for them unless God tells us differently? Or do we make plans to kill them, regardless of what God might demand of us if the time comes? Taking up our cross means to be willing to die in this present age, even if, you know, even for what seems to be the craziest of reasons. You know, we don't know all ends. And so we must be open and listening to God so he can teach us a different way, a harder way. The world doesn't choose violence and self-serving because it's the harder way, but because it's the easier way. That's why God's ways all sound foolish to those who are perishing and people really don't like the Sermon on the Mount that much because we don't trust God enough to live by it. And before somebody, uh, before somebody uh, inserts this, yes, people say, well, what if nobody, what if no Christians fought against Nazi Germany? I'll tell you, Richard Hayes has this excellent thing that he says. He says, what if the German Christians refused to fight for Nazi Germany? There were a lot of them, and they were fighting for him. They were taught nationalism, okay? We need to, we need to question ourselves and our pre-assumptions and what we believe with our whole hearts to be right, because sometimes we're just regurgitating the ways of the world, but, um, we've convinced ourselves that it's God's will. Now, in the Western world, we are guarded, guided by a pursuit of happiness and have mistakenly assume that is what God wants for us, our happiness, our comfort, our ease. 
But those things are a barrier to the gospel. When we feel those things, we jealously and even violently guard them. You know, like we've guarded the gospel for ourselves and don't much care who possesses it once we feel we're safely in the ark and we motion for the door to be closed behind us. Right? But we aren't called to that kind of walk. We are called to sacrifice self for the kingdom no matter what the cost. That we have deceived ourselves into morphing the gospel in a tool that defends the way we want to serve ourselves and our families and our temporal best interest and call it kingdom service is just beyond tragic. It's the classic age-old lie that we can have the kingdom but in our own way in our own timing, and according to what makes us comfortable. Oh my gosh, now if any of you are still listening to me and don't hate me with, you know, but you know, just think about it. Just think about it. We need to always question ourselves. Always. If we're not questioning ourselves, you know, then, goodness sakes, what are we doing? And what will we be able to justify doing if we just... You know, in a lot of ways, America isn't a better country than all the other countries. People my age were taught to believe that. But in some ways, we're just as much villains as, as anyone else, all right? And our way of life comes at a cost to others, especially in uh, Asia. Comes at a heavy cost. It really does. Anyway, all right. So next week, we're going to talk about Mount Hermon. And what the pseudepigraphic fictions of Enoch, and it's fictions because it's a collection of writings by different authors that are often at odds with one another. What it tells us about what the transfiguration of Yeshua would mean about the fate of Satan and his kingdom when it occurred. Okay, this is the ultimate cosmic throwdown, and we're going to look at it through the eyes of first century Jews. It's the only eyes to look at it through right now. Bye.